Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. Rivers as a connector of times, places and lines. Over to you, Amy. So, um, nature and culture, this session, what a gloriously roomy theme. Um, everything we are and everything we do, I think that pretty much covers. I want to take the opportunity to add the element of time travel to that, um, as if it wasn't um, spacious enough as a theme. So my first flashback is to the spring of 1984. I was 13, struggling to settle in at a new school, I'm hiding in the library at break times. I wish I could say, Mark, that I was reading Ted Hughes and Henry Williamson, but it was <laughs> Asterix. The adventures of Asterix. And then on an ordinary Saturday tea time, this happened. And this was um, the ITV adaptation of the Robin Hood story, Robin of Sherwood, written by Richard Carpenter. It was, wasn't the first um, adaptation to... Um, make Sherwood Forest a character in the story, obviously, but it was the first, certainly the, the first modern telling um, to weave myth into that legend. Um, the scene here is Robin meeting a shamanic incarnation of Hearn the Hunter, who gives him his new identity and his mission, um, along with the mantra, nothing is forgotten, nothing is ever forgotten. And it absolutely 
captivated me. Um, it was like it was like hearing the forest speaking, and it hinted at a, I'm going to use the word um, spiritual belonging, which I took to heart. So it was somewhat ironic that over the following years, it was my developing interest in nature that that severed me culturally from from that kind of thinking. I opted to study three sciences at A-level, degree in biology, a doctorate, and at each stage, doors to more right-brained, intuitive, creative ways of thinking closed. I was trained to think in rigorously scientific terms about just about everything. Um, I became quite disparaging of likes of fantasy, of religion, and any form of meaning-making that wasn't empirically um, testable. It took me 25 years to find my way back, and I don't want to diss science or, or straight natural history in that sense. I really value what I learned and all I experienced. It's just that with any, any very constrained way of thinking, eventually it just didn't enough. Um, so I started belatedly looking for nourishment for the soul as well as food for thought. And around the time that kind of shift in my thinking was happening, I was walking in my local wood when I came across another horned forest god in, in the act of emerging from, from the earth. Um, now, you might be looking at that seeing a pile of logs, but squint a little bit, um, and you might see this god in roebuck form, as I did. Um, and before I knew what I was doing, I was on my knees in the leaf litter and hearing that voice again. Nothing is forgotten. Something I didn't know had been missing for all those years came rushing back in all its tingling ineffability. I'm going to call it magic. I'm probably oversharing and you're thinking, we're supposed to be here talking about rivers. <laughs> so, rivers. For 10 years, this was what rivers meant to me. Um, in the early 2000s, whitewater kayaking wasn't what it was about. The rivers that I knew and loved um, were fast, they were steep, they were white. And whitewater kayaking took me to places that you can't reach in any other way. Here and overseas, in the Alps and the Himalayas and New Zealand. I loved them. I thought I understood them. I was wrong about that. On, um, on New Year's Day 2012, um, a group of my close friends went out to celebrate the new year by paddling the River Rawley in Cumbria. And one of them never came home. Kate was the same age as me. We'd had children about the same time, young children. Um, we thought we were doing really well at juggling motherhood and adventure. It took me seven years to go back to that river. Um, in fact, I pretty much avoided all white water. But when I finally did and spent some time there paying attention, um, I realised two things. Um, first, that I, that I missed it viscerally. Um, and second, that in all those years of hurtling along rivers and challenging myself, on them in a, in a quite physical and analytical way, technical way, um, there was so much that I had missed. I decided to go back, not just to whitewater rivers, but to as many different flows as I could find and see what they had to show me. And a lot of that sort of rebooted relationship with rivers and with water involved immersion, uh, making myself as much of the flow, a part of the flow as I could in, in different ways. And I guess that naturally made me quite a lot more aware of water quality. Um, I also found myself following the flow 
upstream and downstream in my mind and realizing that a river is very far from just water in a channel. Um, rivers don't have beginnings or ends. They are, there are rivers in the sky and under the ground. Um, and it's the same old water cycling around that's been going around the earth for billion years, ever changing and ever the same. When I, when I look at trees now, I see rivers. And when I look at the veins in my wrist or in my hand, I see rivers. We are as much a part of the river, part of the water cycle as the river, as the, as the rain, as the aquifer. So drinking untreated water now in the modern day seems unnecessary and possibly even outrageously foolhardy thing to do. And there aren't many places I do it, I'll admit that. But it's important, I think, to, to remember that this is where water comes from, not the kitchen tap. And of course, this water on the Yorkshire Wold, spring near where I live, um, is not untreated. It has been treated, not by radiation or for um, chlorination or boiling, but by filtration through the finest filter that there is. Cork feels like the Rock of England. Yes, we have granite and slate and shale and basalt and grits and wonderful landscapes associated with them all. But there's a reason that in another iteration, I'm slightly obsessed with Robin Hood, another iteration um, of that story, Kevin Costner falls on his knees under the Seven Sisters. There's a reason it was there. And partly because it looks dazzling, spectacular. But the main significance of chalk landscapes from a, from a human perspective um, is that they surely are among the most generously habitable in Britain, rich in ecological and geological resources, um, especially the flints that have been so crucial to um, the early human story. And of course, they have the most wonderful water on the planet. Clear, mineral rich, temperature controlled, and until we messed up so badly, teeming with life. Some of them still are. I've had the privilege to swim and snorkel along some of them, thanks to John Trail, my friend who's in the middle here, who's going to be talking more about Yorkshire's um, chalk rivers. I've, I've had the chance to snorkel along a tributary of the River Hull, just absolutely thronging with fish and been astonished because I've grown up not used to that abundance. It was a, it was a shock to see it. Um, there's also an essential romance to, to chalk rivers. They wind through a million picture postcard images um, and they sparkle through our literature and they well in folk songs and poetry as sources of all that is good and sustaining. It's slightly odd in all this celebration of chalk streams that the ones closest to me up in Yorkshire are almost entirely forgotten. Perhaps because so much centres on fishing and that there's not quite so much of a tradition up there of that. I don't, I don't really know, but we have chalk, as you can see on the, that little green strip. I'm sure most of you know this, but chalk there. And that's what um, is the basis of the, the Lincolnshire Wolds and then a bit further up the Yorkshire Wolds. And on the, on the right is a yes, rivers only overlay um, showing appropriately the chalky areas showing up quite bony white because obviously in chalk landscapes the river tends to the water tends to percolate down into the rock rather than over the surface to the relatively few rivers there. Um, so this is Spell Guy Spring, another of these wonderful boiling sources. 
you can't spend time sitting by a spring like this without thinking, well, it's coming from somewhere. And it makes you think about where. And it leads you on, I think, quite naturally to a sort of metaphysical line of questioning. Um, you don't have to be neo-pagan or, or hippie or, you know, any kind of water worshipping, um, it's a natural thing, worshipping water, hydrolatry is, is a natural kind of response to seeing something like this, I think. But um, but even if you're, you want to be very straight, very um, much in the empirical scientific world, it's still really impressive. You can push your hand down onto that spring and feel the power of it, the physical power of it pushing up, pushing up. You know, you could, there's no way you could put a lid on that. It's like there's a fire hose down there. It's an astonishingly powerful place to just, just experience. So um, the world's, this is this main area here, and then up, up at the top, You've got this, so most rivers drain kind of east and then south into the, the River Hull. But then there's this one, this <coughs> running east to west, or west to east, sorry, towards the North Sea. Um, that is a strange little river. It's called the Gypsy Race or the Gypsy Race. Um, it's lonely, it's isolated, it's unbranched. And it's clearly been identified as something special for a very long time. There are ancient monumental features dotted all along its course. Um, dozens of Neolithic mounds, including the largest round barrow in the country at Doggleby Hall, close to the source. Um, and there's a particular concentration of monuments on that strange dog leg where it turns south at Burton Fleming um, and, then, and then east at Rudston. Um, around there, there are, there's a, there are henges. There's not one but four cursus monuments, those, those linear ditched features which no one really understands what they were about what they were for, but they all converge and intersect with the with the river here so that's not a coincidence and then there's this rudston monolith it's the tallest standing stone in britain at eight meters high absolutely enormous um, and it stands on that second 90 degree bend in the river and has done for over four thousand years it's it's Early Bronze Age or probably Neolithic might be considerably older. The jury's out on exactly how old it is, but it's a really long time. And there can be very little doubt that, um, that that is there because of the river. I have to say it also looks rather delightfully like the many years that Asterix's friend Obelix used to, uh, <laughs> to lug around in the Um there, it being there, it's an astonishing feat. It weighs 40 tonnes, an estimated 40 tonnes. There's possibly almost as much of it below the ground as above. And it's not local stone. So the fact that it's there speaks of an overwhelming um, motivation to mark that place. Now, the flow of the Gypsy Race is very intermittent. Along some sections, it barely runs at all for much of the year, or at all in some years. But just now and then, it floods very dramatically, filling from springs that are so occasional that they're forgotten about for generations. And this is welling, this is above what's re normally recognised as the spring head. And as you can see, it's just bubbling up in the middle of a field that's been ploughed and tilled and sown. So clearly the farmer wasn't expecting this. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of tiny little spring mouths coming up there, gathering, flowing into that 
that's um, overgrown area in the background, which is the spring hedge. So I visited in February 2020, thanks to a tip-off from, from John, um, and I found those dozens of little springs. And I recently heard a story from a, a lady who lives in Burton Fleming about um, springs that popped up under her house when she was a child. And this, this fickleness of the Gypsy race led to local superstitions that it flowed for horns of misfortune. It flowed, they say, before the Great Plague of 1664 and before the deposition of um, King James by William of Orange in 1689. It flowed just before a meteorite landed at Wall Newton, just close to the, the course, um, and before both world wars. This was January 2020, which of course turned out to be an entirely ordinary year. Gonna move us a couple of hundred miles south to another river that's um, lesser known and lesser celebrated. Although that's not entirely right, because um, this, is, this is the Hogsville. It rises near Ewell um, and joins the Thames at Kingston. And I say um, it's less celebrated because not so many people maybe know it in person. But, uh, but millions of people see it every year without realising it. Um, this, of course, is John Everett Millet's painting of Ophelia, which he created when he was 22 years old. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, in 1851, um, probably the best known of, of all the pre-Raphaelite works. Um, the pre-Raphaelites were, were revolutionary in that they, they painted nature as they really saw it, as they actually saw it. They tried to depict it as it really was. Um, and... The diversity and the verdancy and the, the muckiness is what makes that painting sing for me. It, it, it's as much, you know, decay is as much part of the mix as life. And, and that was a new thing to try and portray that. Ophelia was Shakespeare's invention. The face you see there is that of Elizabeth Siddle, model, muse, and in time, um, an important artist in her own right, who died tragically and young, which brings a bit of additional pathos to that image, I think. What's less known about this painting is that Millet tried to paint a water bowl swimming in the water alongside Ophelia. Um, and despite his astonishing talent, he just couldn't get it right. And eventually he gave up and scraped it off and painted it over. And in the years that followed, of course, these once abundant mammals also disappeared from this river um, and from most of the rivers in the country. We know the exact spot near Old Malden where this scene was painted thanks to an amateur historian called Barbara Webb, who devoted her retirement to finding and identifying it. I visited in, uh, in February 2020, which wasn't ideal. Branches were bare and the banks were muddy. Sections of the river were clogged with trash. And just downstream was the obligatory urban traffic cone. Um, and as you can see, the river itself wasn't looking great. But for all this, the, the corridor remains a miraculously green spoke into, through the, the urban sprawl. And there were clear signs that the river was being cared for, at least in places. And while I was standing there, feeling a little bit um, gross, I guess, um, a kingfisher zipped past and did that thing. You, I'm sure you've all had this experience, that it feels like being pleasurably electrocuted when a kingfisher kingfisher past you. Um, and in that moment, defibrillating moment, um, I, um, I heard that voice again. Nothing is forgotten. 
And a few months later, I learned that a group of young conservationists running a community project in around Surbiton um, had succeeded not only in restoring sections of the river, but in crowdfunding the money required to reintroduce water voles. And if that news wasn't good enough already, they also told me that Barbara Webb, the historian, was still alive in her 90s, so I got a chance to speak to her. She was delighted about the return of the voles. And she told me that when the painting of Ophelia was being cleaned, the conservators at the Take That Tape Britain found a sketch under the frame, which they thought was a water bowl. Possibly not a very good water bowl for John Everett. He just couldn't do it. <laughs> but as Barbara said, it was, it was good to know, nice to know that it had been there all along. So I went back for the big day last year in end of August. And it was completely wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> way, they did the work and they paid for what needs to be paid for because this is their river. Their sense of collective responsibility turned them into guardians and activists and advocates. And I know lots of you are involved in equally wonderful projects, but we are still too few and we need a lot more help. Rivers are an ecological imperative and the ultimate connectors. But in England, they are treated as property as the preserve and the responsibility of the few. While I know some of you might con cite conservation as a very good reason for restricting access, it has to be said in the big picture, uh, the current system really couldn't have failed more comprehensively. Um, and I think it's time to let the rest of us try and be part of the solution. I, um, I work with the Right to Roam campaign, and if you're not familiar with that, you could be forgiven for thinking it was a campaign about access. Um, and actually, it's really about restoring a culture of connection, um, of care and of rights and responsibility. That's project on the Hogsmill, brilliant example. Um, after seeing the bowls, I, um, I walked upstream to the Ophelia location. Um, the traffic cone had been replaced by a car tyre. <laughs> the right place to pay my respects to Barbara Webb, who had died in the intervening months. And... It was late August, so I'd again missed the period that Millet had illustrated so beautifully. Flowering had given way to fruiting, and I made an offering to the river on behalf of all those lives for whom that place meant something, um, including Shakespeare and Ophelia and Lizzie Fiddle and Millet and Kate and Barbara. Then we've got Rosehip and Slow and Blackberry and Hawthorne and you there. I'm just going to sum up by saying I'm grateful for my, my scientific background um, and the privilege of education and experience, but I've also had to unpick some of that. Some of the science has given way to story. Um, some of the obedience, I was a very good girl that was drilled into me as a child, has given way to questioning. It's okay to change your mind. I've jumped some of the fences and the rails I once thought were there to keep me safe and on track. Some of those closed doors have opened again. And they're not the kind that you get, the rectangular kind you get in buildings with hinges and locks. They are portals, they are springs, and they're people and opportunities, and they're moments in time. And I'd love to think that this event, this, this confluence of perspectives and ideas, could be one of those moments. Our rivers aren't owned by everyone very, very clearly. They could be, and they could, they, they could, and they, they must belong to everybody. We have so much to do. Thank you, Amy. I love the idea of us as part of the water cycle. I don't know what we are, but we don't think of ourselves as such, maybe we should.
I'd like to welcome to the floor next a fellow Hampshire resident. Dylan Everett has lived and worked alongside the River Test for over 20 years, where he uh, works for the National Trust at the Mortiston Trust. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to come to Britain today. And then since that in crowd, you, you know a lot about rivers. And uh, having worked on the rivers for 20 years, I feel slightly intimidated by you guys. Um, I, as, as, as introduced, uh, work on the middle reaches of the River Test in Hampshire, a very, very beautiful part of the country, um, but also has a significant number of issues that we need to address in our day work. Um, Mosfoli itself um, was built in about 1201, um, and is absolutely great one is the building, surrounded by beautiful parklands and uh, historic formal grounds. Um, water and Mottisfont go together hand in hand. <coughs> the name Mottisfont comes from Mutisfont, meeting point by the font from the Anglo-Saxon. So we know our resonance with water has been significant throughout its time. Even before the 1200s, when the abbey was built, it's very likely there was some significant uh, uh, human impact with the river and connection with the river. And from before the 1200s, right through to the current day, our river has been manipulated by human activity. It is completely not as it would have been in its natural functioning form. It's been changed. There are culverts, ditches, uh, hatches, sluices, spillways, old mill races, revetments, all across, all across our waterfronts, across the, across the river. But when you step away from the abbey itself and then out of the formal grounds and you walk onto our river beats, there's one name that's revered amongst our, our fisher folk, and that is F.M. Halford. F.M. Halford, some would say he was the inventor of fly fishing, but it's not actually the case. Uh, F.M. Halford uh, really popularised or made very accessible uh, dry fly fishing in its what he was considered to be its purest sense, the ultra-purest way. Uh, taking fly on the water that the fish is rising to, to feed from, and then mimicking it exactly through the art of tying a fly, and then the skill and the difficulty in casting that and casting that rod on the water. F.M. Halford himself prescribed in detail how this should have happened and what he considered the etiquette, the, 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 the rules of engagement with fishing and the dry fly uh, and the river. And uh, very much as in F.M. Halford's time, for a hundred years thereafter, with the beautiful huts that we have along our river beats, uh, fish and fisher folk have enjoyed our rivers for, for that last hundred and hundred and fifty years. Um, so he wasn't the the, the founder of dry fly fishing, but certainly with his two hundred uh, journals and his seven books, which were extensively written and detailed in their description of how river keepers should manage the rivers and how. Uh, tenants should acquire their sporting rights, um, right through to how the art of the fly should have been dressed and indeed how it should have been cast, have inspired a number of people, many, many people over the years. In fact, time passes very slowly at Mottisfond. And uh, when I go to the foot of our Oakley Beat, uh, which is the, the one famed by Halford, the, the Mottisfond Oak, you can see at the bottom there, reminds me that time passes slowly every time I see it. It's a magnificent tree. Probably, you know, people people try and date it. I, I'm reluctant to date 
a tree like that. That feels like that's something that we need to get better science to understand fully. So <laughs> it's not inconceivable that that tree is hundred years old. Uh, it's seen some. It's seen. It's seen some history. Uh, there are verified, I'd say, fairly nailed on accounts of uh, various residents in the village perhaps being conceived in that tree because it's hollow inside, uh, <laughs> the, the, hollow, the hollow covering over over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and just like time passing slowly, that moss response, between 1903 and 2004, um, we only had four river keepers. And each of those river keepers was succeeded by the previous river keeper. So the, the, the uh, details that FM Alfred had described upon our river courses were passed on by generation to generation in a very, over a hundred years to a very few people, right up until Ralph Collins took over in 1975 and then retired in 2004. I started with the National Trust in 2002. So I was lucky uh, to work with Ralph in his last year in 2003 before the National Trust took the river management back in hand. When we took the mirror management <laughs> and it was never going to be universally popular what we were going to do, because we had the aspirations to try and, you know, undo some of the prescribed workings of the river to accommodate the, the fishermen and the fisher folk that are on the water and more and make it more akin to the nature that we wanted to, to see around our, our riverways. Um, we established a brand a brand of we like it shaggy, and this was from the Chow Chow and Salmon uh, magazine in uh, 2008 i believe um we we left our fringes to go go rugged um right, thriving on the allowing our floodlife to thrive along the fringes uh we sensitively managed our week uh so we didn't you know wholesale cut as prescribed by halford in his books which you know he he developed those skills on our river system so they were very you know ingrained on our on our waters um and at the same time, we went round looking further afield from the rivers. Uh, every adjacent area was taken away from any arable production and restored back to permanent pasture to try and help protect uh, our peatlands and our adjoining river edges. As well as that, we put ditches in, bed level raising, huge amounts of work with fantastic partners like the Wild Trout Trust, the EA, uh, the Trout Trout um, Test Niche and Restoration Strategy was a fantastic resource for us that we exploited as much as we could. Um, we made sure that the fly life and the science that we had on our were the driving forces of our river management. We, we tried to make sure that everything we did was there to help perpetuate better biodiversity, pushing in woody debris where we could, restoring our river banks for water voles and such like, installing otter holes, um, uh, undertaking lots of science, working with lots of local colleges, universities to undertake projects to understand more about our water. And there were successes. You know, we we expanded the range of water voles. We saw more regularly the, the kingfishers actually perching on the uprooted trees that are falling into the, falling into the river. We, you know, collected detailed surveys from our local colleges and from the environment agencies themselves doing their own survey work. And uh, we saw active and encouraged otter populations proliferate around our, our water. Um, we also had, you know, the chance to an opportunity to, to start putting some saplings in that could then later grow on to, to provide more cover and shelter for our, our fishing areas. However, today's river I kind of feel like I, I've worked on it for 20 years and I feel like I don't understand it anymore. Um, 
Our rivers are now algal blooms. Lots and lots of non-native species being pulled out of the river fringes that have been that have been flooded down and, and, and taken foot in, into our rivers. And then equally, see the picture in the middle. That's the the one of the July weed cut last year. Um, the weed cut in the river test is a massive part of the river test. If I'm honest, uh, probably all the uh, river managers up and down the stream. And uh, I thought I understood it. It's known to be a dark art. Um, uh, I've never quite been so happy to use the scythe as some would like me to. Um, and certainly some of our fisher folk have reminded me of that very often. Um, but this July, when we were experiencing such low levels, when we knew that the land was absolutely parched and that we hadn't cut any weed at all, to have to spend, you know, 15 hours pulling that through every single bit of our watercourse, off every area that had been dried out, every tree that we'd left in that we pulled away from. Uh, at such a remarkable amount of weed was like truly astonishing. It made, made me think that either the weed growth is much more sporadic than uh, I know on our, on our report, or I don't understand what we're, what we're quite doing. Also, can see now that you know uh, when you work on the estate for so long, you can see that the effects of the landscape on our rivers. Some of these fantastic features are struggling. Look at those trees; they've got nothing around them. They're not providing anything. They're not doing anything. But they're they're monuments of our history. They're something we should really cherish and preserve. The tree at the back there is really struggling. You can see it's under significant stress. The soils that that's on, that's the same field, um, you know, they're cracked in the summer, absolutely dry, back to the bare substrate. You know, there's, there's very little organic matter assisting in that, which means the yields of the fields are much lower. And in the winter too, when we get this uh, deluge of rain, the, the huge impact that extreme weather and weather events happen, our roads run like rivers. That's That seems to be what happens. Our perched banks, you know, the banks that probably proliferate from the 1650s, 1700s. Um, uh, so the rivers are higher than the surrounding field masses. They can't cope with the extra flows. Um, you know, we, we see significant amounts of the landscape washing into our rivers every every year, more and more regularly. And with these increased massive variances in the weather, it's made more and more pronounced and something that I don't recognise anywhere near like I did when I when I first started on the water in 2003. So when I looked into the wider landscape, I can also see the exact same thing has happened. And that's that's what's absolutely astonishing to me. Uh, and it's become more and more acutely in my mind as, as I've managed the estate over the last few years. When you look at our estate woodlands, at the same time as Halper was developing his skills, Large swathes of foresters were walking into our ancient woodlands, felling them, selling the timber, and then ditching out, ditching out to drain away the near felled areas to make them suitable for growing conifer. That conifer being fast growing and high yielding, and therefore a, a great resource for the, for the forestry community. No consideration to the water and what it was going to do thereafter. In actual fact, there probably was consideration. It was to get that water away quickly. When that water got away quickly, up in the top, you were up at the top of our estate there, well away from our river. You can see that our farmers too were doing exactly the same thing and they probably have done longer than the 150 years of uh, the, the forestry, forestry works. Uh, so at every juncture, we, our actions, our man-made impacts on both the watercourse itself and its surrounding environment 
has led to us trying to speed up the flow of every drop of water as it falls from the sky and gets to our river core. And that is clearly having a, a major impact on our river systems and how we manage them today. But what's led me to really get frustrated or motivated to do something about this is this absolutely remarkable It's a barber bat. In 2002, uh, I got back to sector, first year at the job, but why not? Um, worked with a fantastic consult manager at the time, Phil Marshall, who also got back sector, and we very much enjoyed going out bat detecting. In the first year of uh, 2002, we found we had 12 species of bats in, in, our, in our estate. Our estate is about 1,650, uh, 1650 acres in total. It was bequeathed to us by Moore Russell in uh, 1957. Uh, uh, when, it was, when it was given to us and gifted to us, it was given to us with tenant rights for the fishing in situ uh, for, for at least 60 years. Um, but when we, when we uh, studied further into the bats, we found that one of the bat species in particular, this, the Barbersdale bat, was absolutely rare. It's, the, it's one of the rarest bats in Western Europe. And then we started to get some further study on, on it, and we realised that we actually had a maternity colony of this, this rare bat, one of the largest maternity colonies indeed. It literally hanging on to the remnant areas of ancient woodland that had not been felled over the last hundred years and not been drained out uh, and, and residing in there. They live in flappy bark underneath on the flappy bark on, on trees. You always think they'd be in the biggest, oldest trees with the biggest holes in and the and the biggest cavities. It's not the case. Uh, we've had massive trees, not, not the size of the Mossman oak, but huge oak trees with three bats in or no bats in. And then we've had small trees that size with 42 bats in. We've never caught a, a male bat, so we only have the pregnant females. When we've done some tracking of these bats, we've realised that as soon as they emerge from their roost, they swirl around to get together a bit for about two minutes, and then they literally dart as quickly as they can down to the wall to feed on the fly line, on the surface, as you would, as you would expect them to. That's going to be where the most proliferating the <laughs> Now, to us, these are a chalk seed species, because we've got the chalk stream and these bats are massively important to me, uh, hugely. They're an SAC designation now, so we're very proud to have had that uh, on our land in uh, 2007. Um, and a lot of our management works now hinge upon us trying to make sure that these, these bats have safeguarded futures at Moscow Estate and are resident forever. <laughs> the idea that this species is a woodland species, which is what, when I speak to forestry communities, uh, go to woodland workshops, similar to, to things, I, I manage new forests as well, so we go to other, other, other frameworks, we're looking at heathland and such. Uh, this would be a woodland species and like only considered like that. I need you, like you guys, all to consider that there's much more to the chalk stream community than just the river, river species that you see yourself. And actually, the connection that we need to create for things like this is absolutely imperatively important. As you can see, to benefit the bats on our estate will also benefit the chalk streams of our rivers and our water courses. We're never going to be able to, well, I'm not saying never, let's, let's fingers crossed, but it's going to be very difficult, very expensive to change every man-made infrastructural change on our watercourses to make it truly natural. And um, we should try. But also, we need to make sure we've got connection. And connection seems to be a theme coming today, so I'm very, very, very pleased that I've been able to talk to you about this. We need to make sure that the water that we've got in our woods up behind the catch, we can hold up there longer. We need to manage that water better so it's got more diversity. We need to put more connection into our farmland to make sure that 
that those those cows, which are, you know our, our farmers are great. They've got they've got some great cows. They're willing. They don't want to lose their soils. They don't want to be applying fertilizer then washed straight into our water sources. That's not good money for them. That's not good economics. Uh, but actually to work with them to provide more parkland tree settings, to provide better connection for our bats to get from the wall, from the from the roof sites down to them feeding sites. And at the same time, let extra habitat for things like bluebell, uh, and, and as well as doing the in-stream works, the energy dispersal, marginal fringing, the dead wood accumulation. So just to summarise, I want to sort of implore to you that you can't have healthy chalk stream in an unhealthy environment. It's just not possible. You have to have a healthy environment with a healthy chalk stream if you're lucky enough to have one. We also know that we're at an evolutionary point on our, on our journey with bridging our rivers. We've had 20 years, so now some of the trees that I've planted as saplings are able to now be hinged into the water to, 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 to provide extra cover and woody debris habitat into the, into the river. And at the same time, we have, in the last two or three months, planted over 650 more trees along our river courses to increase the tree coverage to help with our cooling temperatures, help with the shade and biodiversity in, in that regard. We know that we need to protect the legacy of FM Health, but it's a fantastic story. It's made people able to get closer to nature from the way in which he's uh, demonstrated and articulated in human fishing. Um, but we also know that our access really is seriously something we need to consider on our estate too. Our fishing will become harder. It will become more difficult. We need to be wild fish, wild fishing, and not just the trout, not just the salmon, not just every wild fish that we can and celebrate all of the all of the off of our river courses. And we also need to provide better access for people because if you've got a club with just, you know, 50, 200 people visiting a year, we're only getting a very small snapshot of what's actually going on in the water. Only a very few opinions. Now, you go back to the first couple of slides when you heard uh, FM Halford and the four keepers since. If you look at our fishing community on the set, quite a lot of, quite a lot of that is very long-standing. People have expected to see their fishing to be unchanged for years and years, years and years to come. Um, and, a, and are very critical when you change your casting spot or make a bank fringe much, much more deep or invariably, uh, uh, in, one of the worst ones that I find I get complained for is when you turn a little refuse zone, an area where you can't fish. Like These are some of the most important bits of my fishery. And yeah, some of the bits that I'm criticised quite often in the past, <laughs> past about. Um, so effectively, I hope you've heard what I'm about to say today. Uh, it feels like... Uh, we're embarking on a new part of our journey of the Mossfawn fishery, where we are going to be absolutely committed to the wild fishing and uh, going away from anything to stop stop waters. Um, and uh, I know that's going to be not necessarily very much like when we started it, like we like it shaggy, universally popular. The River Test is a it's a very traditional place, but we think that's right for us. I'd like to thank you today for listening to me and really think about looking outwards. When you look at the river, river channels, because it's not just the water that you can see, the way in which it gets to us that really helps the difference. Thank you, and now I'd like to welcome our final speech to this session. Paul Powerbank, Paul is a barrister and founder of Lawyers for Nature. I was realizing it's actually quite cheeky to come before you. Um, my the title of my session is Owned by No One. 
um, with a session title that's completely uh, at odds with the overall conference title, um, with no uh, slides or PowerPoint uh, from a river, um, the river roading that's not even a chalk stream. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, also, I realised one of the few people here that's never even been fishing, even though I also ironically own a fishing club. And I'll see about that in the questions. Um, however, it gets even cheekier than that, because what I'm actually going to do in the next 20 minutes is ask you to reconsider one of the key bases of our society and how that reconsideration can be brought into your work, into your organisations and into your relationship with rivers and chalk streams. In my work for Lawyers for Nature and in representing nature in the legal system, both rivers and trees particularly, I've come to realise that one of the key underlying reasons for the many crises we face, whether that's the climate crisis, the soils crisis, the sewage crisis, all of the different crises that we can see ratcheting up around our society, it often comes down to one underlying belief a belief which became prevalent in our society about 300 years ago, which regards nature as dead, nature as a resource to be extracted for human ends. That underlying belief, I believe, lies at the basis of most of the crises we face. And indeed, particularly so when it comes to the many fascinating issues that we've heard about in relation to chalk streams and rivers. Why is it? that as the regulations multiply, as the incomprehensible acronyms increase throughout the work that you do, everything seems to still be getting worse. Why is it that the more scientific studies we have into why our rivers are fucked, do they seem to get worse and worse and worse? It is, I believe, because we're not tackling the underlying belief that led to that. And that's why I asked that cheeky question about spirituality earlier. Spirituality maybe is the wrong thing. You might think we're going to start sort of dancing around a, a pagan campfire dressed as druids. But the spiritual question ultimately is this. Do we relate to nature as something that is dead and a resource to be extracted? Or do we relate to it as something sacred, as something intrinsically worthwhile, as a, a spiritual connection to nature? And I'm going to talk about this through the lens of rights of nature. Who here has heard of the rights of nature movement? Yeah, quite a lot. OK, great. I don't have to do too much background. Um, the rights of nature movement at its heart, I see it, is a way for often indigenous societies to put their worldview, because, spoiler, indigenous societies never got our worldview that nature is dead, that nature is, isn't sacred is to put their world through the prism of our current legal system. And so there are different rights of nature interventions, and it's a sort of catch-all term to describe an, an ecosystem, different legal interventions, and effectively put that idea that nature is sacred, that nature is alive, into a legal framework. There are different examples. So um, a number of South American countries have, for instance, put rights of nature into their constitution. Um, done in Bolivia with the rights of Pachamama, not particularly successfully in practical terms, it must be said. More successfully in Ecuador, where it actually stopped oil drilling in a, in a rainforest last year. Um, there are uh, local interventions, so getting rights of nature for particular rivers through local bylaws, which have 
there's been attempts to do it in the UK, but it's been more successful in the US. And what I think is one of the most interesting interventions, which is the Wanganui River in New Zealand, which through an act of the New Zealand Parliament in 2017 was granted uh, not only its rights, but also self-ownership. Hence the title to this talk of owned, owned by no one. So it was no longer owned by humans. It was owned by itself. And it had a legal personality. So it can bring legal cases in its own name and also a guardianship body. To us, those ideas seem pretty crazy, maybe. Uh, maybe not. Why did that happen in New Zealand when it doesn't seem like it could happen in the UK? Their legal and political and economic system is probably one of the most similar to ours any in the world. What, why did it happen there? The Maori, the, Maori, the Maori people, exactly. They still had their strong indigenous voice. And more crucially, actually, that indigenous voice demanded, as part of its long permanent peace settlement with the British crown, that their sacred river, the Wanganui, be given its rights. So they were saying, if you want peace with us, you must also make peace with nature and give, give the river the rights. Now, those things might seem quite strange to us because we're... The idea of a river suing someone might seem odd. The River Test uh, suing a water company for over-abstraction or the River Roding, where I live, suing uh, a water company for putting sewage in might seem strange. But actually, it's part of a journey that we've been on for the last 2,000 years of the gradual extension of rights. We've been on this gradual path where 2,000 years ago, only rich, white, citizen, free men had rights, adult men had rights. And over the last 2000 years, gradually extended. So we gave rights to children, rights to women. We freed the slaves and gave them their legal rights. So that now we're at a stage, and not, not entirely complete, but where most human beings are seen as worthy of rights and having legal personality and standing. The next step, I believe, is to extend that to nature. And actually, I don't see it as that radical a step. Because actually, we've already extended legal rights to non-human entities. We just get so used to it now that we don't even think about it. For instance, our, our last speaker was from the National Trust. The National Trust is a fictional entity. It doesn't actually exist. We just made it up and said that it should have legal rights. And yet that entirely fictional entity can bring cases in its own name. But the river that actually exists, that the fictional entity owns, cannot Right. When you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, yeah, even more egregiously, what companies? It is a testament to the imagination and creativity of lawyers that we managed <laughs> to give legal rights and personality to entirely fictional entities that do not exist, like Tesco, like Thames Water, entirely fictional. We made them up before we gave them to our rivers and trees, which not only exist but have been here before we even arrived on these islands and for which we ultimately depend on for our own survival. And so that's the, uh, that's the sort of groundwork of uh, rights, rights of nature. Now, the key question, of course, is how do we do that in the UK? <laughs> um, not an easy one to answer. Um, because obviously we, we know it's very legally possible that we could do this tomorrow. If the New Zealand Parliament can do it with the Wanganui River, we could do the same with the Thames, the Test, all our chalk streams, the roading where I live. We could do it tomorrow with an act of Parliament and it would be a practical thing we could do. 
But of course, as I said earlier, the missing political context is the lack of a strong indigenous voice within the UK calling for that. And indeed a terrible political context that we can't even get our politicians to vote to not put shit in the rivers, let alone give them legal rights. So do we just give up? We carry on with the same thing we've been doing for decades of the over acronymization, I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, of the river sector, of the over scientification of rivers that also hasn't worked. I believe that the answer lies slightly cheesily in us and how we perceive our relationship with rivers. And that in the UK, where we've lost the idea of indigenous people as a, as a noun, <laughs> as a specific group of people who are indigenous, like the Maori, that indigeneity must become a verb, i.e. something that you do, something that is available to anyone, no matter where they're from in the world, no matter what their passport says, it depends on how you relate to land, how you relate to nature, and what you do in relation to that. And the joy of that is, is that not only is it available to any one of us at any time to step into that relationship of indigeneity with nature, but it's something we can just, we, we don't have to wait for anyone to tell us to do. And then it links into this idea of guardianship. So we decide that we want an indigenous relationship with nature to regard it and hold it as sacred, to protect it and restore it. We are becoming its guardians which is probably one of the most radical things that happened on the Wanganui River, was getting that guardianship body looking out for the interests of the river. But the thing is, we don't actually need, obviously it'd be helpful for it to be effective, more effective to get an act of parliament, making it an legally official body, but we don't actually need their permission to step into that relationship. It's something we can all decide to do. And I'm gonna give you in the last 10 minutes, an example of how I've done that. Uh, in relation to the river that I love and the river that I seek to restore and protect, which is the River Roding. It's not, as I say, a chalk stream. It's so close. It, like The source is right near a number of chalk streams uh, up in Essex, uh, but it doesn't. it's not, as far as I know, officially uh, a chalk stream, as I was told by Fergal Sharkey on Twitter. It's not, <laughs> not, not, not in the exclusive claim. And uh, although it's London's third largest river, it's also uh, incredibly badly abused. I have to say, when I see pictures during today about these gin clear, beautiful waters, and I know there are problems with the chalk streams, I know that, but when I see some of the pictures, I think, God, if you only knew the absolutely cataclysmic state of some of our rivers like the Roding, you'd be, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really very depressing. Um, and I guess a crucial thing about it is, is that I, I am not trained in any kind of ecology. I've never done anything like that. I'm, I'm a barrister. Um, the key, I guess, connection to water for me is I lived on a boat for the last 11 years. And six years ago, I got tired of being pushed around the waterways of the Canal and River Trust by some tedious pen pusher in a Milton Keynes office telling me I wasn't moving far enough every two weeks. And so I decided to go and found my own community on a river to restore. So I literally got a map out of all the rivers in London and started looking at them being like, where's a good river? Uh, it turns out, of course, most of them aren't, they're lost. Uh, the Fleet and the Tyburn are lost to history. The Quaggy, 
Um, and indeed, <laughs> the Wandle uh, uh, had barriers on them. There were very few potential rivers that actually worked. And the one that immediately caught my eye was the roading as being in London, but far enough out of the centre. The property developers hadn't got quite got their claws into it yet. No one really in charge of it. There was a part of it that neither the tyranny of the Port of London Authority nor the slightly less ty tyranny of uh, the Clan of a Trust extended to. And also no one ever lived on it and no one seemed to be doing anything with it. And also it was in a terrible state. It actually needed people to actually come and look after it. So that's what I did. I set off on my boat down Bow Creek from the River Lee, along the Thames, up Barking Creek to the roading and moored up on the river roading, crucially without anybody's permission. <laughs> uh, no, no permission at all. No idea really what I was doing. No ecology training or history in any of this stuff whatsoever. Just an idea to get to know this river, to get to understand her and slowly store her as best I could. And that's a point as well, pausing there, that I think is very important to this idea of both this idea of indigeneity as a verb, but also this idea of guardianship. I really fundamentally believe that we will love that which we know and we will protect that which we love. Now, that may sound very hippie and you know, spiritual, but actually, I was thinking earlier on today, hearing some of the talks, some of your questions, that it actually seems very akin to what people are saying about fishing, doesn't it? Like the reason it, that someone mentioned that gives them, gives them the chance to basically spend time in nature without being thought a bit weird. I think one of the things was earlier on, you know, sit, sitting by the river without being seen like a weird man or something, right? So it gives, it gives you permission to be just out on the river to get to know it. And it's interesting seeing how much you fishermen really want to protect your rivers. And I believe you've gone through that process. You've spent enough time next to a river that you've just grown to love it because that amount of time you spend with something will lead to love, I believe. And that love without any prompting really will lead to a deep and fierce desire to protect that which you love. And I've felt that process happen to me on the roading. This, I don't need to go fishing because I live on a river on a boat. So it's like a giant bird hide almost. Nature doesn't, isn't scared of you for some reason. You're maybe because you're lower down, you're behind a window, but you're so intimate with it. It's right there. I've lived there for six years, seeing it in every season. The trees that I've planted as tiny willow stakes have grown into uh, proper trees that are six times my height that I can now climb. Seeing the, the kingfishers and all the different wildlife and birds and, and the nature of the reed beds through every season. Without intending to, I've fallen in love with the river very deeply. And that love just naturally creates a desire to protect the river and to act as its guardian. Because I go out and this place that I love, someone's fly tipped all over it. How can I not want to clean that up? When I walk along the river and see Thames water throwing actual shit into the river, how can I not want to stop that? How can the desecration of something that I hold to be sacred not arise such feelings in me? And so I, I say to many audiences, you know, you need to go and um, create this, this knowledge and this connection to, to a river. Actually, I think with, with most of you, actually, it's already, uh, it's already there. With most of you, that, that connection, that knowledge, and indeed that love is already there. Um, so for me, for this audience and for, and for all of you, the key question is how you turn that which already exists 
more into this idea of guardianship. And it's actually just a very simple shift of the prism through which you see your work already. This amazing work that so many of you are doing to look after, protect and restore our rivers and our chalk streams. Just slightly stepping into a different um, uh, way of seeing it can make a massive difference. So, for instance, on my catchment partnership I proposed, hasn't been accepted, I think it's a bit weird, but I'm still carrying on with it, that we appoint a river representative on the catchment partnership so that there's one person there who is actively speaking for the rights of the river. And we actually, as a catchment partnership, set down what we think those rights should be. And imagine if everybody did that. Imagine if the National Trust had a nature rights representative on its overall big board and your specific estate had a river representative. Obviously, most of the time your interests are aligned, but imagine there's someone actually just directly speaking for them all the time. And in all of your organisations, imagine if you had that, that guardian, that person actually speaking up for nature. Of course, it doesn't just affect how your organisation does things. This way of thinking, this different way of thinking about nature and about rivers can impact how other people perceive you. For instance, when I've been dealing with Thames Water, I've noticed if you go in with like the usual water framework directive, here's an acronym, here's a reason why you're acting grossly illegally, this is why you're a criminal gang, all this kind of stuff, it doesn't have as big an impact as actually talking from this rights of nature perspective to say, be under no illusion. I love this river. And therefore, if you hurt her, you are hurting me. And I will do whatever it takes to peacefully and lawfully damage your company if you don't stop. The Environment Director Thames Water looked at me slightly weirdly when I said that. But I think it hit home and it does hit home to other people and it can begin to shift their idea. So if your organisation start talking about rights of nature, the rights of rivers and start putting that into effect by having a specific guardian who is there representing nature, that will change how other people perceive um, your organisation and its relationship to nature and inspire them to change. And with such amazing work that you're already doing, that slight shift of the emphasis could actually have a big impact in changing this hugely important underlying basis of our society that is leading us to destruction on so many fronts. And that I believe unless we challenge it, no matter what we do for our rivers, will ultimately uh, mean that they're not fully protected or restored. And indeed, the damage is likely to get worse. So, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions because that's uh, I'm about, just about out of time. So thank you. Thank you. If I could ask the rest of our speakers to come back to the floor. So we have some time for questions. I'm going to admit to being a bad host and not knowing how much time. So Brilliant. one of you shout at me if we run out. Brilliant. So can I can I kick off? First of all, thank you all for three amazing, inspiring, challenging presentations. It's a kind of comment and a question. And if we have one minute at the end, I'd like to read a poem. But it relates to something that I noticed in your talk, Paul but I think it informs all the others. You talked about falling in love with her. You gendered the river. Why? And is this mother nature? Does the gendering of a river help mm. us personalize, protect, love? Mm. In answer to your question, it, it's, something that I've, it's something that I've thought about. Um, and actually I've got quite a lot of feminist friends who kind of dislike that kind yeah. of that feminization of it. Um, I would like an alternative, but the main thing is I just don't want to call the river it because that continues this same idea of the relationship with, with it. It makes it into this dead, 
thing that, that humans own and is there for our our resource extraction. Um, so when I say her, it actually better describes that more familiar, um, deeper relationship of love with the river. Um, but I, yeah, the, the, the feminine thing, maybe we should start calling the river him and seeing how that rolls. I don't know. I wonder whether Amy or Dylan, you had anything to think about, comments about that. Um, I think the, the reasons that we tend to ascribe feminine um, characteristics, attributes to rivers, they're, they're the obvious ones. It's the source of life. It's, it's, it springs as, as vulvas. Um, <laughs> I said that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, there is, there is a, this, this, <laughs> this life-giving property that they have. And that's, and, and I, I agree with Paul. I'm uncomfortable with it as well. It's almost like we need another word um, that isn't necessarily gendered, but isn't that, that is more kind of alive. Just that you know the rivers are a life provider, aren't they? They're a life giver. Yeah, they're they're a life giver. So you know, I don't know whether that's a, a gender in itself, but you know, I think it certainly relates to your mother nature uh, uh, comment. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think effectively we've just got to. Uh, allow people to refer to it and know it for what it wants to be and what, what, what we what we believe it to be. It's like that debate over whether God has a gender. Yeah, God has a gender. Yeah, that's that yeah. question. That's a long, that's a long conference. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the wrong room. <laughs> I think I'm out of the <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's really a question for all three of you because I found the um, presentations incredibly engaging. I have a tension with the word ownership, and um, I think you all, in different ways, talked about, well, Paul particularly, talked about a new word, indigenuity, uh, and uh, guardianship. And um, when Dylan spoke, I immediately thought of stewardship, and this is something that I sort of hold as a value. And I mean, we're getting into semantics now, but maybe the barrister amongst us can clarify that. I think stewardship goes with an awful lot of sort of class, you know, land ownership and whatever. So I'd be very interested to know how you view stewardship, because I see that crossing all strata of society. So it's not the big bad companies, it's, you know, not the poor folk, the people with no voice. Everyone has a responsibility of stewardship. So that's my first, you know, I'd like to hear more about that. The second is more of a practical point in that we, particularly with the National Trust, you know, we're, we list all our, our built environment, we protect our built environment, we value the heritage of our built environment. And I'm ignorant on this. I don't know if we have the same sort of legal protection for our rivers and our streams and our waterways and whether there is any way that could be implemented, or if it is, could you just tell me more about it? For, from my perspective, our river is protected, um, but I think it's only protected insofar as as much as the people that work and live and uh, care for it do actually care for it. The, the, the protection itself is very unlikely to go with huge punishment. We see this up and down the test and all, all the other rivers as well. So from my perspective... It's uh, representing our members' interests because, you know, we're a member-funded organisation, the National Trust. We may be stewards, but actually the overriding responsibility we have is to provide the, the management and the, the care for our habitats and our land that we manage in 
perpetuity for the benefit of our membership um, because that's what they expect of us. Um, in terms of ownership, yeah, I have the same the same problems. Why well, I work for the National Trust, we're an access and conservation charity. I'm a conservationist with a passionate desire for more access across our countryside places. So um, I don't know if that helps at all with explaining from, from my perspective. It's not very nice when someone said to, you, said to you, oh, you've been owned. It's not a nice feeling. I mean, who of us would like to be owned? It's deeply offensive. So yes, I do have a problem with, with that. I also have a problem with stewardship and custodianship and even guardianship to a certain extent, because there is still this sense of being appointed, having been appointed to a role, you're special because you have this responsibility that's maybe been given to you. It has a, a, a slight whiff of patriarchy about it, I think. Um, we can nurture. We can we can be nurturers. And it's almost I've spoken about conservation in terms of mothering, actually. Because the role of mothering, I'm not saying that you have to be, you have to have given birth to a child to be a mother. Of course you don't. You can exhibit mothering behaviours, which are these behaviours of nurture, of intense care. Also delivering the hard work when it's necessary, but also by its very nature. Mothering is, is I mean, it pains me to say it, but mothering is supposed to be finite. We're not supposed to always be here for our children. If things take their natural course, at some point they become independent from us and they, they, they make their own way in the world. So part of the role of mothering, as my friend Kate, who I lost on the river, this was the thing she said to me when, when my son was born, part of the responsibility is rearing that child to the point where they no longer need you. Um, and if we can nurture nature, nature doesn't really need us, but if we can nurture nature in that way, that allows it to make its own way, we support it when, when it's required, when it's needed, um, and then let it be what it wants to be, um, so it's that willingness to let go um, that I think is often forgotten about in traditional models of conservation and stewardship, custodianship, guardianship, whatever you want to call it. We need to remember that we're not always going to be here, but hopefully nature will be. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of already covered the issue of why I don't like ownership. But of course, remember, what was it? Just over 200 years ago, you could own another human being, which was a completely normal way that things were perceived. That's how society was. And now the idea is completely ludicrous to us. I think that's how things will work out with nature, the idea of owning it in that dominion sense that you can do whatever you want with it, I think is going to go the same way. Um, stewardship, yeah, I just, it, it's, it, it's used a lot by people who are really into the idea of ownership but want to sugarcoat it a bit, I think. And in my eyes, and there's quite a lot of people who say they're stewards of the countryside while absolutely ragging it um, for their own interests. So I, I'm just suspicious of that word. And the reason I really like the word guardianship is that we already have it for children and other people who are mentally ill, for instance, who we understand are their own entities that cannot be used for other people's ends, but which sometimes need another human being to represent them within this system. So their rights come first, like the children, the rights of the child are paramount in any decision in the family courts, for instance. But there's someone, because they can't know what their own interests are fully or fully represented, there's someone to do that for them. And for me, that idea of guardianship is almost 
pretty much irrelevant to who owns the land. On the roading, we have no permission from the landowners to do any of the work we're doing. And we, we see the same with children, don't we? we? We let parents have some latitude as to how they treat their children. But if they go outside a certain band of what we consider to be correct, we will intervene and we will stop them in their relationship with that child. And it's the same with nature. You know, to some extent, if, if a farmer is roughly looking after nature or a piece of river that runs through their land, then I'll leave them to it. But if, if they allow their land, like parts of the roading, which were so full of rubbish, they literally got two feet of plastic rubbish on top of the river. You know, you've abused your rights as a guardian of that piece of land. I'm not going to ask your permission to clean it up. I'm just going to go in there and do it. And I regularly just planted trees in other people's land without their permission. I go and smash open the council's pavement because I think a tree needs to be there. And generally, if you're looking after nature, and want to restore and improve it, then I would really not look to permission of owners. And I think we do that too much in this country. Nick, next. First of all, I'd just like to rise to um, defence of Ted Hughes owned by everyone. I take the meaning of own to mean shared or a joint responsibility, not a contractual relationship. But more seriously, I've been asked... What can we do to save the CAM, our local river, whose aquifer is being bled dry? Um, and I'm interested from Paul's point of view, how he might set about tackling that problem. It's quite interesting when I hear about other river groups, like on the Y, talking about chickens, and then on in the CAM, talking about river abstraction. It's quite interesting how you get knowledge of the, your own problems from your river, but not other people's. So actually, uh, because the roading isn't a, a general chalk stream, it's not generally affected by river abstraction as much, I think. So it's not something I have a particular specialisation in. Putting it through the lens of the framework that I outlined, I think the key thing is to get people who live on the river to enter into that relationship of guardianship with it, of protection. And that already happened just over a year ago. No, it's come up to two years now, isn't it? There's a declaration of the rights of the River Cam where lots of people use that as a way of emitting their, their love and their care for the river and then acting as local activists. And obviously that hasn't magically solved the problem, but if the problem is going to be solved, it will be, I think, from that local level with dedicated people who are fighting for the river and who know the problems and doggedly, determinedly keep going with it. As we've seen on, you know, on the Windrush, with that, you know, their their local guardian in light of a problem which seems probably overwhelming and unsolvable, it just doggedly kept going. And if we had more people like that on every river, I think it would potentially begin to make those problems solvable. Because I, I don't see them as very solvable in a top-down way. That that model has failed. And I think that kind of bottom-up people who really know the river and are connected to it and will fight their love for that river may make a difference. Thank you. Um, third point, I work for the National Trust. And I'm really worried now, Paul, that I might not get paid or I might not have a job anymore because it doesn't exist. But <laughs> what a fantastic session. And it's got lots of thoughts going in my mind from all three talks. One thing that really strikes me, actually, is the kind of um, immersing yourself in place, but also in water. It's like really comes out, Amy, you know, you talked about uh, whitewater kayaking and obviously you know on that journey of uh, putting your hand into springs and so on 
Dylan, you've got that real strong connection with the estate of Mottis Font. You know, it's kind of shaped the way that you think and the way that you kind of relate to it. And Paul, you, you, you know, effectively described immersing yourself in, in the whole place of the roading and, and taking that. And I'm wondering if maybe a tactic we should have, and I think we talked about this once before uh, in a kind of policy space, was should we be getting water company chief executives to go and swim in the rivers that they're discharged <laughs> going into? Should we be getting farmers, yeah. you know, to go down to the river? And is all of that kind of a symptom maybe of the fact that loads of people are so disconnected from river, rivers, which is an access problem, uh, we saw, you know, with the, the footpath example on the test, you know, people are so disconnected. And actually, if you have to immerse yourself, you know, you can't even see them. But if you have to immerse yourself, you become really alive to kind of the, the problems that are facing these places. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if that might be a tactic that we invite water company chief executives to come along and swim in their local river uh, and see whether they'll rise to the challenge. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, immersion is, is life-changing. Our skin is the biggest organ in the human body, right? And so when you feel every bit of that organ being stimulated, God, I'm doing it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, it affects you physiologically, physically, emotionally, mentally. And putting yourself in the river by choice puts you in a position that all the other life in the river doesn't necessarily have a choice. You know, those fish, those invertebrates, they have to live there anyway, regardless of the condition. Um, and it does make you more aware. And I, I swim even when I know that there's shit in the river because they have to, in a way. And I've been really lucky in terms of catching tummy bars and that kind of thing. I've had the odd perhaps, but nothing too serious. Um, but when it happens, yes, I'll be mad. Yes, I'll be angry. But I, I wouldn't accept that as my responsibility. So when people sometimes use that as a reason to say you shouldn't be, you, know, you shouldn't be in the river, you get off my river. It's not safe. I just think mm, that's I'm not the problem. That there is a problem, sure, but I'm I'm not it. So yes, it makes you care more, and I think that's a great idea to get more people in the river. I and mean, it's good for them as well. You know, the mental health, physical health benefits of, of cold water swimming are are legion and well known, scientifically, medically documented now. So yes, absolutely. I'm going to end on a cheeky note um, and actually pick up on. The first part of your question, uh, where you talked about the National Trust not existing because it illustrates something really perfectly. Obviously, elements of what makes up the National Trust exist. You exist, you get paid a salary. The actual buildings and the rivers and everything makes up the National Trust exist, but it's wrapped up in a fictional legal entity. So the National Trust as a, is a concept, but it doesn't actually physically exist. Right. And that's what's really important to apply to rivers, because, for instance, if someone comes to the National Trust property and throws a brick through the window, the National Trust can sue them for that damage. If someone come, is doing something that damages the ecology of a National Trust site, the National Trust can do that. You know, uh, if it even damages the National Trust reputation, they can then sue. If someone comes and damages a river, a lot of the time there's nothing that can be done because our regulators who are supposed to be doing something aren't doing anything at all. And there's no actual entity to enforce it, right? And, and as an example in relation to, again, going back to the National Trust, I've done all the work on the river, which I didn't actually get to tell you much about, sadly, about all different little projects going on the roading, but that's all been done in my spare time uh, as a volunteer. 
right? And actually, the river could and indeed should have a team of probably 30 people plus a chief exec, the River Road and Trust or whatever it is, guardianship body acting for that river, checking all the different outfalls, walking the river at least once a fortnight just to check what's going on on it and people aren't infringing its rights. And if they discover something, starting legal action to stop that infringement of that rights. Checking all the planning permissions to say, actually, this is the river's interest in this. This is what you need to do. Right. But the reason that can't happen is because because the river is not given legal standing, it has no it's not a legal entity. The river is economically expropriated constantly. Right. If Thames Water gave even a fraction of the economic value that they take from and put back into the river in the form of water taken out, sewage put back in, that could easily fund the team that I spoke to you about. Or even, frankly, even if actually someone prosecuted Thames Water for all the offences that it's committing within the current legal framework without even changing the law, just those fines, if it went back into the river, would fund a team of 30 people plus a chief exec to go and actually represent the river and its interests. And that's this magic about this idea of nature as a legal entity, as having legal rights to sue and be sued and a guardianship body. And that's why I think it's so important. I think we have time for one, as long as it's very short and short answers. I wanted to ask exactly what it, what this idea of legal rights does that's different from the institutions and setups that we have already that are simply not being done well enough. So I think you've partly answered it, but not fully, fully and maybe I'll need to collar you afterwards. Just an observation, though, um, or a comment. Uh, I hear all the time about how things are getting worse and worse. And um, I think the comment is mostly made by people who weren't around in 1989 or who weren't looking in 1989. There's so much about rivers that actually, we were at the Nadir in the late 80s, early 90s. Now, some places like a site where the abstraction has definitely climbed on the River Ival, for example, in, in between, and we've moved abstraction pressures around the place in response to fights being made elsewhere, et cetera. But abstraction of the chalk streams was at its peak in the late 80s and early 90s, and it has been coming down since then. The phosphate loading of our chalk streams was way, way higher then than it is now. Um, and I think it is important. It's not to say that things are good now, because they certainly are. But it's important to have a sense of perspective um, and to be able to look and see the things that have changed. We, we heard all about Mottis Font. The river test in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, the joke was it's the longest stock pond in, in Europe. And yet things are massively changing on that river now. We've got trees going in it. We've got uh, advocates for slowing down the weed cuts, making the banks much wilder, etc. So I do think going to the whole chalk stream piece, I would counter the idea that things are endlessly getting worse and, and therefore we need to um, sort of throw, throw all that progress out or disregard it because I think it is important to be able to look back and go, actually, hang on. Now, I remember when I started work at Camford School in, in the late 80s, and uh, I, I found one brown trout in the River Stour in seven years of working there. I reintroduced grayling, which is still there, to the river. And now I go to the Stour and there, it's full of trout. The, I saw little uh, yellow, yellow may dams hatching there last year. They're deeply pollution intolerant. It's the first time I've ever seen them there. The Blackmore Vale was hideous water quality 
30 years ago, and it's considerably better now. So just a, a, a slight note of optimism every so often is quite handy, I think, so that we can fill ourselves with the sort of idea that things can be made better, but it's not an easy journey and it's a long one. Thank you, Charles. I think to sum up what we've heard this afternoon, before I hand over to Mark, um, we have legal protections. They, however, don't always work fully. Um, they have made some significant improvements, but there's also more to do. And where they don't work, we as people who care about book streams have uh, a role to, to sort of step in and, and help as guardians or stewards or, or whatever term we choose to use, but also to engender that care in others as well. On that note, I would like to firstly thank our speakers. Here is a poem from the Nadir, the 1980s and early 1990s, and it's called Nymet, N-Y-M-E-T. There's a Nymet in Staffordshire, but there are lots of Nymets in North Devon. No man or Latin ever netted one deity from this river. Tor meant simply water. What was her true name when with yellow smoky nettle pollen and the first thorns confetti, she crushed the May bridegroom's head into her flood? Afterwards, she bore him unfailing all summer, the splendour of eel wreaths, the glut of white peel, the glow-cold sea-new salmon deepening together her comb and her name. Where is she now? A fairy drowned in the radioactive Irish Sea. Blood donor to the Southwest Water Authority. Her wounds being requisitioned for the cloacal flux, the accountancy curse of the Express Dairy Cheese Factory biggest in Europe. A miasma forms <laughs> on the town bridge at odd hours over her old home, now her grave. That's her. She rots, but still stirs a nightly dewy spectre, nameless revenant in her grave shroud, resurrected by her maternal despair for her doomed pa. She wipes their lips of the stuff that weeps from her curdled dug since it became the fistula of a thousand farms. That's her. Now she truly can be called sewer. More truly, the washer at the ford, as in the old story. The death rags that she washes and washes are ours. Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College, Cambridge, 
the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.